is I should be writing Season 20, Episode 3. Hi there, welcome to I Should Be Writing. This is a podcast for wannabe fiction writers, and I'm your host, Mer Lafferty. I've been doing this for 20 seasons now. I've been a pro writer since, I guess, for about 10 years now. So um, those are my credentials. I sometimes throw them out there. It's really hard to brag about things like that, but knowing how many people are just giving out advice online when they've done neither of those things... I try to let you know that I, I hope you're in good hands here. Um, my writing has been fairly regular lately. I think I'm going to have to do another podcast about the fact that I... there There's... What is my problem? What what am I going to do about it? And I, and I did that. I figured out what some of my problems was were. But then I went to where I... And I know what to do about it. But then there's that next step of actually doing it that I'm finding like, wow, I've got the map. <laughs> I got a good night's sleep. Why aren't I moving? So I'm still working on that, but I uh, did get some writing done this morning. So that's a happy thing. Um, but I am delighted to welcome to the live stream and the podcast today, Ailish Quinn, the author of Medea, which comes out in uh, a couple of weeks, February 13th. And we're going to talk about that. Welcome to the show, Ailish. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. It's very rainy here. I'm in Los Angeles and we're having an atmospheric river right now. Oh, so. no. LA doesn't like rain. No, LA we panics don't. with rain. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just delightful, but everyone kind of freaks out, which mm-hmm. is endearing. Well, you know, everybody freaks out of weather they're not used to. People make fun of North Carolina when we get snow, but I'm like, look, people don't learn how to drive in it when you don't grow up with it. Also, we can't afford to like have snow plows and uh, lots and lots of salt just waiting for that one snowstorm. That's that's infrastructure that's not really makes sense to us. So divergent based on location. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I want to get started talking about Medea. Um, well, I really love the fact that we're getting a lot of feminist retellings of a lot of Greek myths, because while I grew up loving Greek myths, women don't do real good in them. And um, I remember the first book I read was uh, Four Kids. And I remember it talking about how Zeus married all these women. And I thought, wow, that's Mm -hmm. weird. And so getting older and learning more about it, I've been really happy to learn how different, how women are now approaching those stories and approaching those translations. How did you uh, get started? What, what what made you want to go with Medea? So I think Medea specifically kind of caught my eye just because, um, you know, she's one of the most formidable and I think also reviled women to kind of command the pages of Greek mythology. Um, for those of you who maybe aren't super familiar with her story, she's known for murdering various separate members of her like immediate family, um, which is intense. Um, and her story is an incredibly ancient one. Um, it's been told for thousands of years by uh, very eloquent composers from like Apollonius to Euripides. Um, 
So when I was retelling her story, I think I was interested not in necessarily detracting from those original stories, but maybe in exploding them a little bit and giving Medea the space as a protagonist to be all of the things that perhaps women in antiquity uh, were traditionally vilified for. So being ruthless and also vulnerable and creative and clever um, and resilient and complex. Mm -hmm. So kind of where I was going with that. But I think, yeah, Medea fits into this emerging category of uh, Greek feminist retellings, which is almost like its own genre mm -hmm. right now, just the first one of the Renaissance, which is really cool. And it's an exciting time to be writing these because um, they require, I think, kind of a radical orientation of our focus or a modernization in some cases of like really beautiful, brilliant ancient stories that are also kind of um, dark. Yeah. So it makes us question the reliability of the narrators we're given. It makes us think mm -hmm. about how content influences like plot or characters. And I hope that like this book specifically, along with like the many others that exist in this genre, are having people kind of think critically about storytelling when proliferated by like structures of oppression, um, like how that can compound harm. So in Medea's case, right, her story is traditionally told by men mm -hmm. um, in a patriarchal society that's also fairly xenophobic. She's from Colchis. Um, so she's perpetually seen as this outsider. Um, but when we reorient and tell it from her perspective, um, that can actually be a really radical and beautiful way to kind of um, re-experience maybe modes of history that have previously been erased. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I had a fascination with Medea growing up because she does do some horrific things, but I always thought revenge was her ultimate goal and she went mm -hmm. as far as she possibly could to get it, which I thought was awesome. Still scary what she did, but I, I remember just being ad admiring her just a little bit because, you know, she would just didn't let any assumptions about her hold her back. No, exactly. Right. She's, um, she's kind of this example of monstrosity in an age where there are literally monsters running around everywhere. Mm -hmm which is kind of exciting, but I think a lot of times because she is a woman, right, um, and a mother, like, I think what's interesting is, like, her biggest crime, I feel like, in, in antiquity is her being a bad mother, mm -hmm. which is, which says a lot about, I don't know, I think how we perceive um, feminine presenting people, but she's the first, uh, she's not the first um, person in Greek mythology to do, like, the specific crimes that she's accused of, like, Hercules kills his wife and children, mm -hmm. um, cuts up his children and serves them in a stew. Kronos devours his children, mm -hmm. which is like insane. Um, but because she's a mother and mothers are sort of like associated with the comfort and domesticity and familiarity of the domestic sphere, it feels very perilous and threatening when that's kind of um, upended, I think. Yeah. And it's also what, you know, even you partly using your language in the book, children are how men keep women. And, yeah. you know, what they, you know, it's their, it's, it's a leash. It's a living leash that, mm. that keeps them nearby. So men know that once the kid is there, she ain't going nowhere because she's got that kid. And so, um, so even that, that it's another thumbing at the patriarchy, you know, child murder, never good, <laughs> but not it's good. like it's 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 more you know all the men were doing it to retain power or well hercules went insane because he got bit by the gadfly isn't that right 
I think it was, yeah, some sort of enchantment by Hera. Yeah. Really and, mad at him, which is, yeah, it's a yeah. thing. So, um, but she just did it to hurt the man in her life. So I thought that was very powerful. But one thing I want to talk about, and this is partly because I see in your work a huge deficiency in mine, which is your language and the way you describe things definitely do not read like a debut author. It's just these, you've got this rich dis description of um, everything in the sea and the Titans and, and Medea's parents and everything and, and, it's just so glorious to read. And, you know, you kind of broke the rule of don't fall into exposition in your first couple of pages because you'll bore people, but you definitely do not bore people. And I just got to know, how'd you do that? <laughs> That's so great. Um, I think part of it is, I, I can't take credit for it, the story itself, I think, inspires a lot of, um, like, brilliant exposition and creativity just because the myths themselves they're so complex and precise um but i think also like i just for me personally description is always one of my favorite things to write i think because it's sort of this challenge where you're looking at something perhaps that you see every day or perhaps that you've never seen and you're wanting to kind of present it in a new and engaging way or a poetic way i think too like um this is like maybe the most frustrating thing about being a writer, but also one of the most rewarding things is like, there's this kind of uh, reckless futility in writing in the sense that nothing will ever match the ideal in your head or yes. like nothing that you convey on paper will ever kind of um, hit that transcendent note you're hoping for. But even so the imperfection of that like translation or that inherent reduction kind of breeds its own poeticism, which is really beautiful. So I think sometimes you, you reach for the stars and you hit something and it might not be the stars, but it's good, you know, but see, or enjoyable. I'm going to disagree with you a tiny bit because this is something that I've learned, which is, no, it may not compare to what you had in your mind, yeah. but we don't know what you had in your mind. Oh, so yeah. our reading of it is still just absolutely wonderful. I mean, I turned in a book and I wrote like, you know, I need some guidance on here and here. And I know this character really needs to be fleshed out because I don't think I've talked enough about him. And my mm -hmm. editor wrote back and she thought, I thought he was a great character. He's great. He's well-rounded. He's cool. Don't, don't touch yeah. him. And I thought, how? <laughs> because in my head, he was, you know, bigger than life. And on the page, he was a character on a page. And, and so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm trying to learn that um, there are, more views of your work that right you know other people aren't going to see what you had in your head compared to what came out on the page and find what's on the page lacking so that that's that's a disagreement with you but it's also a compliment because to me it was just seeing and almost touching the characters and the water and the air and the the dirt in you know in your work it's just so excellent and something I have a big problem with. So it's, uh, I really admire people who can do that. That's really interesting. Well, I've, I've loved your description so far. So in the, in the, in the part of the book I've read of your book six weeks. So oh, thank you. Maybe it is just like how we see our own work and how we're hypercritical of our own work. Yes, but not to get on but, a too big of a tangent, but the first, first chapter of six weeks came directly from a conversation I had with a astrophysicist who told me with great glee what happens to blood in zero G. 
I was and, so, I was wondering about that. It's so, okay. yeah. Sorry, go on. Because it, it felt well-researched. So. Yeah, she, that was almost, you know, our, I, I tried to use everything she told me. She was just like getting really into it about how gross it was and awesome. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I, I got to give part of that to, credit to her because, yeah. Um, that, I think, again, like description is so difficult to divorce from the context out of which it emerges. So like you really focused on kind of the blood in zero G and like you made a beautiful kind of like descriptive uh uh, like elements out of that. And I think like I, my book is very focused on like planetary herbalism and like the natural world too, just because mm-hmm. that's a huge source of Medea's witchcraft. And so kind of like lean into the things maybe that, um, you know, feel relevant to you as a writer or to the story. I don't know. I think that helps a little bit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I'm going to be doing this year, I've been doing a lot of questioning of, I've been doing this podcast for almost 20 years now. One thing I haven't really done with my guests, so you're the first, and I don't know if you're going to thank me or not for this, but I I, want to talk about what hurdles you came up against. Like, what did you struggle with on getting either either in the process of getting published or in writing the book? Because, you know, usually beginning writers hit walls and think this is insurmountable. Clearly, I'm not going to be a writer. And so I want to hear what you got over on this path to this amazing book coming out? Oh, there are so many hurdles. Um, so many. And I think I've been relatively privileged throughout this entire process. So um, I think that's so normal. Um, so for me, I think the first thing is probably a mindset issue, maybe a little bit. I, For me, writing is an act that's very much intertwined with like existential dread. I feel like good when I'm writing consistently, when I'm crafting like maybe 2000 words a day, that feels soothing and like also invigorating to me. But I don't know if it's because I've internalized this like capitalist propaganda that you have to be um, productive in order to be valuable or useful, or mm-hmm. if it's like I genuinely rejoice in the act of creation sometimes. So a lot of times I'm I'm thinking or interrogating kind of my reasons for writing, um, and that delays things a little bit. I think um, too I have this kind of um, rapacious or urgent sense of ambition which is totally at odds with the the rest of my character but it's kind of this like compulsive or desperate or hungry or like weirdly transcendent desire to um make meaningful work for other people which is like maybe a people-pleasing thing i'm not sure but um the only like solution i found to those feelings of kind of like mindset or inadequacy is usually to focus on a project that is like so sufficiently weird i know that it's for me and not for other people so Sometimes um, also working on many projects at the same time is helpful because if you start getting burned out on one or you're just, you know, you find yourself kind of in this space of creative doubt, you can move on to other ones and then shift back when you're feeling better about it. I feel like that's super helpful. Um, I think the other thing that was really essential was during the querying process specifically because I was cold querying um, to be ready and accustomed to rejections and not let that get to you because I you know, I think the majority of submissions you send out are going to be rejections when they come back, unless your novel is just like this incredible, stellar, stunning piece of work, staggering genius. Um, mm-hmm. But even like, you know, I I bet I beta read for some of my friends and they have brilliant novels and they they still get rejections. And I'm just like, you know, so so be ready for that, but also don't let it stop you. So, yeah, we try to um, celebrate rejections on this show because rejections mean you're a working writer. Exactly. So that's that's what we try to do. Um, 
I want to go back to one thing you said. You you're you're doing the thing that I think pros can do, but I worry about amateurs doing, which is going from project to project because some people. Mm-hmm. You know, that can lead to never finishing something. So how do you, clearly you finish something and it's amazing, but how did you, did, did you ever feel like that was procrastination or did you feel like you were purpose, you were putting your, putting your focus on the right spot? Oh, constantly. No, I think I always feel like I'm being lazy or procrastinating. (laughs) Like, I think, um, it's so interesting because I feel like I hear all the time that the best advice for a writer is just to sit down and write. And mm-hmm. I feel like that that in some cases is very true. And again, I, I think it's, I've been most productive when I'm writing every day, but I also think it's really important to be gentle with yourself and to know your limits and to be kind of like making sure that you're taking adequate steps towards self-care at any given time. So like, if you feel yourself getting burned out, like take a break, that's not necessarily going to be bad for your work. That might actually, you know, help it in the long run. I think too, we have these moments where we're like, oh, I'm taking this. I don't know if you're in school, I'm taking this random class and it has no relation to my writing and I'm wasting time. But it's like, I think one of the cool things about the discipline of writing is everything you learn or do in some way can come back and help you. Like that conversation about the astrophysicist, like some people that would just pass by, but Mm -hmm. you turn that chapter. So yeah, I think a lot of it is just allowing yourself the time and space to write what feels good to you. But also that is, that is an immense privilege too. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a story about Chuck Palahniuk writing fight club when he was working a night shift at a gas station. And sometimes mm-hmm. fight club reads, I don't know if you've read fight club, but if it, it reads like it was written paragraph by paragraph with possibly hours between the paragraphs and it yeah. works for Fight Club, but yeah. uh, you know he grabbed what time he could and and made it work. But yeah, we try to be aware of not being ableist and saying the only way to do it is to write every day. But there there's different ways of going about this this practice. Is there anything else that you would you wish you would have known before? going through this, this cold. And can you tell us a little about your journey? If you did the the cold submission? Yes. Oh, this is actually kind of humorous. So, um, and I should, I should start out by saying I, I've kind of written all my life. Like I, I loved writing as a kid, mostly because I loved reading. And so I always kind of had the suspicion as a kid that like the noblest thing a person could do was to write a novel. So I always like knew I wanted to write a novel. That's awesome. Um, And then I, I went to undergrad and I studied English literature Um, and I was like, great, I'm on track, but I just felt like so burned out after undergrad. And so I was like writing a lot of short stories, I think too, sometimes it's useful to, to write shorter things if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're feeling really burned out, but I think I was very aimless. And so my stories were very aimless. And then I very randomly saw this, um, like a contest advertisement and basically the winning manuscript would get published by a small indie press. Um, but the deadline was in a month. And so I was like, oh, I can write a book in a month because I was, <laughs> I don't wow. know, I was young. Um, I was very young. And, um, but actually somehow I did. And that, that book was Medea. And um, so I think deadlines help a little bit. I don't know. At least for me, I like having a deadline sometimes. Um, Cause otherwise I think like the existential dread and the creative doubt will get to me and I will just mm-hmm. like oblivion and nothing will get done. Um, so deadlines are great. Um, but then um I had this manuscript and I was like, what are the chances I'm going to win this competition? Not high. So I started like cold querying, but I, um, 
I didn't really know where to start because I didn't really have any like friends or family in publishing. So I just like went online and I was looking up like best agents. And like, so I just literally, I took a list of best agents and I wrote to them. And that was really bad because I didn't do my research. And so some of them were like, <laughs> not, like economists and they were so polite. They'd write back and they'd be like, this is really not in our purview. Like, mm-hmm. best luck to you, but what are you doing? And then I was like, oh no. So I stopped after about like, like 15 or 20 rejections I was like okay this is not working um it's never gonna get published and then I had a friend who was also doing the querying process and she's like oh no you have to do at least 50 or 60 queries before you know that it's a dud yeah and I was like oh okay so then I, I went back to it and then that was when I started getting um like uh, acceptances or like requests for the full manuscript so a lot of it is just perseverance and again like taking rejections as kind of this encouraging thing or kind of like a humorous thing I don't know. It's mm-hmm. it's good. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, did so you did you have more than one offer offer from an agent? Um, I had two offers by the end of it, but I think I submitted like fifty or sixty queries. Uh, do you, can you tell me how you chose between them? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, the so one actually um, the second one wrote to me. Gosh, I feel like a year after I'd sent my initial query, so I'd already gone with my first agent, but also I think. I just, my, my current agent is brilliant. She just kind of understood the work in this like supernaturally intuitive way. And I like, I can't imagine anyone else having, um, you know, done the work that she's done or just like her knowledge of Greek mythology, but also kind of like where I wanted the story to go. Like she knew elements of the plot, like before I did, like almost like she could just, she knew where I was going. So it worked out really well. Awesome. Yeah. Can you give me any last thoughts for new writers? Mm. Be gentle with yourself. Go with your gut and try to make it as fun as possible, I think. Excellent. Like really lean in. You. Excellent advice all around. Well, we have an ad break coming up in a minute and uh, Zoom's about to cut us off. So I'm going to say let's uh, we'll take a quick break for the ad break and we will restart this call in a moment and uh, ask you some questions from the chat. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to continue listening, the full episode is up at patreon.com slash mightymer or mightymer.substack.com. Can you tell us uh, where to find you online? Yes, I am on Instagram at Ailish Quinn, E-I-L-I-S-H-Q-U-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Ailish underscore Quinn. And I'm also on TikTok, Ailish Quinn. Um, but that's kind of new. I don't know what's happening there. So it's experimental and avant-garde cinema. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> well, great. Uh, you can find me at mightymer at gmail.com or merverse.com. And we'll see you next time because you should be writing. Thank you for listening to I Should Be Writing, the longest running writing podcast in existence. This episode was made possible by the fabulous who support the podcast via Patreon or Substack. Join the fabulous at patreon.com slash mightymer or mightymer.substack.com. Theme music provided by John Emilio. Art provided by Numbers Ninja. And podcast hosting provided by Libsyn. This episode is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. You can find all of my books and podcasts at merverse.com.
watching Doctor Who. Tune in next time when you'll hear Mer Lafferty say. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 